mentioned here, uh, we are talking about uh, the transgender movement. And uh, in the Sunday School Hour, of course, took some time to define some terms. We'll do a little review over uh, the claims of transgenderism just briefly. And, you know, uh, there's so much about it in the news today, um, so much about it in um, uh, whether it's the, the bathroom bills in North Carolina, whether that's Target, uh, you know, allowing uh, folks in their bathrooms and changing rooms, whether that's, um, you know, proper use of pronouns, whether this is someone mentioned to me, too, as we talked about uh, afterward the Sunday School Hour about the athletic programs in public schools and um, those who are uh, transgender uh, uh, girls who are actually boys now competing in girls' sports and how that's, you know, affecting them. So I say all that, uh, you know, to say, you know, We're going to look at the Bible and see what a biblical response should be to this transgender movement that we're seeing taking place in the country. But I have to warn you, okay, when we look at the Bible, uh, we're not, when we look at the Bible, we should never look at the Bible to find out what's wrong with someone else. Anytime we look at the Bible, the Bible is to be a mirror and we ought to see ourselves. And I always remind our students about several years ago, we were going through Old Testament survey at the Bible Institute. And uh, we got to the uh, uh, golden calf, you know, in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel worshiped the golden calf, Moses had been gone too long. We don't know what's happened to him, you know, all this stuff. And uh, so they made this uh, big fire and Aaron put in the earrings and out comes this golden calf, he says, and, um, and all this. And they worship and dance around and stuff like that. And I, I just remember a couple of my students, they had this look on their face and I thought, well, that's, that's not the look I'm looking for, <laughs> you know. And so I, 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 so I asked one of the students. I said, so, uh, I said, I said, you understand this? You understand where we are and everything okay? And she said, these people were so stupid. And (laughs) I said, I said, well, uh, I said, yes. I said, but you know, these stories aren't put in the Bible for us to criticize them. These stories are in the Bible for us to have a little self-reflection about ourselves And when we think about the transgender movement in our country, I think one of the things we need to recognize is that the Bible does have the answers. Um, But first and foremost, we ought to be a people prepared by the Bible in order to take the Bible to people who need it. And so uh, I hope that will make sense to you, and hopefully it will as we look at how we want to respond here. Well, um, uh, in... um, in 2004, uh, 2015, excuse me, April of 2015, former Olympic athlete Bruce Jenner, in a primetime interview with Diane Sawyer on ABC's 2020, came out as a woman. In July, Jenner was both featured on the cover of Vanity Fair, uh, that is a woman's magazine, with the article entitled, Call Me Caitlin." He was also given the Arthur Ashe Courage Award from ESPN for coming out as a woman. Later that year, Bruce Jenner, who was now being known only as a woman named Caitlin, received the Woman of the Year Award from Glamour Magazine, 2015. Interesting timeline, it was in the summer, June of 2015, when the Supreme Court uh, basically upheld the constitutional right for homosexuals to marry in the country. And so immediately on that, we move right into the transgender movement. And that's how quickly things can progress 
uh, as you uh, kind of see those things happening. Well, we talked about um, we talked about in the first hour terminology, and then we also talked about claims. And what should Christians be thinking about these things? How should Christians respond to these? What does the Bible have to say about it? Um, uh, uh, well, the claims of the transgender movement were first and foremost that um, your what you are anatomy, what you are anatomically as a person, male or female, uh, can be different than actually what you feel that you are or what you think that you are. Those two things can be opposite. That is the first claim that is made by the transgender movement. The second claim that is made by them is that whatever gender a person feels that they are or claims that they are is in fact what they are. So feelings then determine reality. That is the second claim of the transgender movement. The third claim of the transgender movement is that following or expressing this inner sense of self is the path to fulfillment. Okay, So whatever you feel you are, act on that. Follow your heart, they might say. That's the way to be fulfilled and to eliminate any distress in your life. And then finally, the fourth claim of the transgender movement is that society should accept and support this inner sense of self as real and normal. This is the normal development of human uh, life, they will tell us. This is, uh, you know, you should just accept someone as that if that is, in fact, what they claim to be. So those are the claims. So what is, so what is the Christian's response to this? How should we be thinking about this, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, uh, I think those are good questions, and uh, the Bible does have answers. You know, uh, the Bible, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. Do you know that? All we have to do is show people how relevant the Bible actually is. And you don't have to actually make the Bible say something, the Bible is already speaking. If you will go to it and read it for what it says, guess what? You're going to hear something. You're going to learn something, and hopefully that'll be true this morning. So in Genesis chapter 1, we looked at verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Male and female. Now, male and female were created equal. They were equal in the sense that they both bear God's image. They were equal in that they both had a responsibility to God. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Each of them had a role to play and each of them were equally responsible to God in order to fulfill that role that they had to play. So they were equal. We find out in the New Testament that men and women, male and female, are equal as it relates to the opportunity of salvation. That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is, no, um, there is no advantage in being a male when it comes to the matter of salvation. There's no disadvantage when it comes to uh, the matter of uh, salvation for being a female. And that would have been contrary, perhaps, to the culture of the time. But they are equal in, in result of their uh, responsibility to God, uh, in their bearing God's image, and uh, in their opportunities for salvation. So men and women are equal. Now, men and women are also very different. Do you know that? I mean, am I telling you something you didn't know? Okay. Um, men and women are different. Now, you, some people would be surprised to hear that today, but they are. Uh, men and women are different physiologically. Men and women are different uh, emotionally. Men and women are different mentally. Now, I don't mean educationally, okay? I mean that men and women think differently. Is everybody going to get an amen there, okay? Um, all right, they do. They think differently, all right? And so, look, men and women, but men and women are equal. Men and women are equal, and men and women are different. 
And by the way, being different is not bad, okay? Um, and um, being equal does not mean the same, okay? Uh, we got to understand those terms too, all right? So what, should, what does the Bible say? What should we think about this? How should we think about this? Well, here's the, first, uh, here's the first response I would make to these claims by the transgender movement. Here's the first response I would make. The first response I would make here is that God's purpose for us begins prior to conception, and includes our gender. God's purpose for you began prior to conception and includes your gender. So in other words, whatever gender a person is born with, God intended that. And that is God's purpose. Notice if you would in the Bible. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. This is, uh, I think, clear here. We'll look at several passages in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, and we will jump around a bit. It's not typical uh, of me to do that, but I will do that this morning just so we see throughout the Bible different places where this um, principle, I think, is illustrated, is that God's purpose for us begins prior to conception and includes our gender. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse number 5, okay? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse number 5. All right, you find that? Very good. I will read. You can listen along. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. In other words, sanctify means to be set apart, to be ordained to a purpose. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So here's what God says to Jeremiah when he calls him to preach. So I'm calling you to preach right now. But I just want you to know that before you were ever even formed in the womb, I already knew you. And before I even began to form you in the womb, I have already called you and I had already ordained that you would be a prophet unto the nations. So God had an intention, God had a purpose for Jeremiah before he was ever conceived and God's purpose for Jeremiah included his gender that he would be male and not female. Does everybody understand that? Uh, Let's look over in the New Testament to the book of Galatians. Let's look at the book of Galatians here. This passage also, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1 and verse uh, number 14, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible says this, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his Son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now notice what he says here. It pleased God. And how does he define or how does he refer to God? He says, God who separated me from my mother's womb. Now, this does not say that God is the one who was responsible for Paul being delivered out of the womb. He's, again, that word separated, we read the word in Jeremiah, the word sanctified, set apart uh, for a purpose. The word separated here is the same idea, sanctified, set apart for a purpose. So what Paul recognizes is, is that God Even when I was in the very womb, God had set me apart for a particular purpose. And he says here that he would reveal his son in me that I might preach him 
among the heathen. Now listen, God had a purpose and an intention for Paul even before Paul was born. And guess what that included? That included his gender. Now you look at Paul's, you look at Paul's early life. What did he do? He persecuted the church. He, he ransacked them. He dragged them off and put them in prison and uh, was responsible at least for um, uh, consenting to uh, uh, Christians being stoned to death. You see? Um, so when you look at Paul's early life, you think, well, that doesn't look like uh, he was very well following God's purpose or intention. You're right. <laughs> it sure doesn't. But what Paul recognized after the fact was where I am right now and what God has me doing right now was something that God intended even before I was born. He separated me. He set me apart for this purpose. So listen, God's purpose for you and God's purpose for all of mankind, he has a purpose for them before they are born and the purpose that he has for them includes their gender. It includes their gender. Now think of the greatest example of this illustration in all of the Bible. Before the foundations of the world, the lamb that was slain. Before the foundations of the world. Notice, if you would, in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're in Galatians, you can keep going right and you will come to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse number 19 is where we will begin. And he says here, in contrast, the earlier verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 here immediately, in contrast to the fact that you are not redeemed uh, with vain things, that is vain things that will disappear and dissolve and go away, uh, that are of no value. In verse number 19, he says, no, you are redeemed, uh, here it is, uh, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It was ordained, it was set ahead of time that this Savior would come into the world, he would shed his blood, he would die on a cross for our sins, and that was all determined before the foundations of the world. What the significance of a lamb... Uh, When we look to the Old Testament, the the Old Testament sacrifices, they were to bring a male of one year old. A male. And so God's intention for the Savior was that he would be born of a particular gender. So look, God's purpose for us is before our conception. God knows what he wants to use every human being for. God has an individual purpose for everyone. And God's purpose includes the gender with which you're born. Okay, so no one can say that what they are biologically is a mistake. I once heard a preacher say one time that, look, God is too good to do wrong, and he is too wise to make a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't. Um, So what we are biologically is what God intended. The basic message of creation is this, that each person's biologically determined gender is a good gift of God's creation. God created us as male or female. There's equality in that. Are there differences in that? Yes, there are. But God's intention for us, God's purpose for us, includes our gender. 
And we need to recognize that. In, uh, we see that in Jeremiah. We see that in Paul. We see that in the Lord Jesus. Um, Vaughn Roberts, in his book on the transgender movement, says this, that our bodies are an essential part of our true selves. So that what I feel about myself, what I think about myself, can never be the whole picture. Our bodies are essential in determining and revealing who we truly are. Okay, so look, God didn't make a mistake. And for us to violate or to alter the purpose for which God created for us is a rebellion against God. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 1 that when they knew God, they knew God. But they glorified him not as God, and neither were they thankful. Thankful for what they were by creation. Thankful for what he had given them in the creation. They weren't thankful. So they knew God, but they wouldn't give him glory as God, and they weren't thankful. It begins right there. Listen, um, God doesn't make mistakes. So there are, uh, God, God, what is purpose for us begins prior to conception includes our gender. When you think about what the things that God could call you to based on your gender, you know, you think about, in other words, a male, God who has, God who has a child born who is a male, uh, he may be called uh, to be a husband. He may be called to be a father. He may be called to be a pastor. You see, but those are all things that are specifically determined by the gender that that child has. You see, that is significant in God's plan. Similarly, a wife, a mother, the female gender, um, a caretaker, those are things that are determined there broadly by, uh, by the gender with which we are born. So look, God's purpose for us begins prior to conception and includes our gender. God has made no mistake, friend. No mistake at all. And the fact that we could look to the Bible and see these things stated uh, that it is before we were even born, that God had a plan and a purpose for us, that is significant for answering this response. That what I am biologically is somehow a mistake, and what I feel that I am is what I really am. No. Because what you are biologically, God has made no mistake. God has made you exactly as he intended to make you. He's made no mistake. Here's the second response I think we would say to this transgender movement. Look, separating our identity from our biology biology is not grounded in reality. Separating our identity, that is what we are, and separating that from our biology, that is our makeup, that is our bodies, separating those two things is not grounded in reality. There's no reality where someone is one thing as far as their bodies are concerned, and another thing based on their mind, their makeup, uh, their neurology, if we want to say it that. Um, there was an old uh, uh, doctrine, and this is addressed sometimes in, in the New Testament, an old doctrine called Gnosticism. I won't, I won't get into that uh, in too much detail, but the key, the key idea of this heresy was an idea called dualism. Dualism, that is two things. Their idea was that everything that was physical was bad and everything that was immaterial or spiritual, unseen, was good. Okay, Uh, by way of application, they would say, this heresy would say, that there was no way that Jesus actually had a physical body. Because how could someone so holy and spiritual uh, have contact with that which is physical since physical is bad? Does that make sense? Okay, so the idea that what I am is what I feel 
That is your feelings. Those are your thoughts. That is something unseen. And I can separate that from what I am physically, my body. That's basically the old heresy of Gnosticism. That's old dualism. Body, physical is bad. Spiritual, feelings, thoughts is good. Ryan Anderson in his book asks the question, what meaning can we give to the idea of gender What sense, internal sense, can we say that we have of being a gender apart from having the body of that gender? In other words, what does it feel like to be a woman? And how would someone who is a male know what that feels like? What would it feel like to be a man? And how would someone who is a female know what that feels like? How can you distinguish? How can you separate between those two concepts and those ideas? Um, And yet this is what the transgender movement would have us to believe that you can do. Um, It's not grounded in reality, and there's absolutely no uh, basis for that. Uh, Go back, if you would, please, uh, to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2. This is a a topic that we hinted at uh, kind of in Sunday school. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, and verse um, verse number 23, Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now Adam named her, by the way, it, it wasn't, God didn't give her the name of woman, Adam gave her the name of woman. And by the way, he didn't name her Eve at the beginning. He actually named her Eve after the fall. There's there's real significance in that. Maybe we'll talk about it. Um, But he named her woman. Now, Adam is the one that named her woman. Why did he name her something different than him? Because she was different and noticeably different than him. You see that? Um, we talked about it earlier. The Bible says in Genesis 1 that God blessed them, said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. In other words, the command that God gave uh, to Adam and uh, to the woman, okay, uh, the command that he gave to them was to go out and reproduce. Reproduction. Now, that means that in order to bear children, the female had to have a particular anatomy for that. Okay, notice in... Um, Genesis chapter 3, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is actually in the context of the curse. Mankind has fallen into sin, uh, and sin now is going to affect all of mankind. Uh, But specifically the curse here, verse 16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now the the one point that I'd like to make about this is that, look, bearing children was part of God's original intention for the female. Bearing children is not the curse, but the pain and suffering that is associated with bearing children is a part of the curse. Um, That is the result of sin in the world. Uh, Sin, by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us. Um, But sin is what leads to pain and suffering. The original intention for the female or the woman uh, is bearing children. That's biology. That's anatomy. Now look, this is not to say that all we are is the sum of our parts. 
Now, but when you start saying that my identity is different than what I am biologically, there, number one, that's not grounded in reality. And number two, there is no basis in the Bible for that belief. No basis whatsoever. Look, God, God doesn't make a mistake. You are what you are by God's good creation. God created you that way. God made you that way. And you say, well, no, God didn't make me that way. I was just the product of natural processes between my mom and my dad. Uh, read Psalm 139 that says that while David was in the womb, God was weaving a tapestry. Listen, we, we have gotten so good at figuring out how God's creation works that we've gotten to the point we just don't need God for much anymore. Like, we don't need God for rain. Because we know, that we know how the water cycle works, right? Evaporation, condensation, precipitation, right? So we know that just works. Natural processes. What do we need God for? We just figured out how it works. And we've forgotten the fact, in, in the midst of all of God's good provision for us, we have lost sight of his providence. You know what? Every child is a miracle of God's creation. Not in the true sense of a biblical miracle, but every child God has a hand in forming and developing. Every child. You are not merely the product of your parents. You are something greater than that, something more than that. When we try to separate our identity from what God has made us biologically, uh, we are basically saying no to God. We are saying no to his creation. We are saying, I know what you've made me, and I'm not thankful for that, and I do not want to be this. And I think we should sympathize with people, empathize with people who struggle with that kind of thing. But I don't think that we should back down from telling them the truth, because they need to understand the truth, that God's intention for them is good. That God's purpose in making them what they are is good. God's purpose in making you what you are is good. So God's purpose for us begins prior to conception, concludes our gender. Uh, There's no biblical basis for separating our biology from our gender. And separating those two things is not based in reality. Um, By the way, the Bible says this. The Bible states here that when one gender expresses itself as the other gender, the term that the Bible uses for that is abomination. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 5 uh, is clear about that. Read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where whether, whether, you want, whether you want to make 1 Corinthians 11 out to be hair length or whether you want to make 1 Corinthians out uh, to be a hair, uh, a head covering of some kind, regardless of which way you go, you can't get away from the fact that the point of the chapter is distinction between the genders, a visible distinction between male and female. And when... When one gender acts and behaves as the other gender, uh, gender, God refers to that as an abomination. And there is a very select few sins in the Bible that carry that classification. Very few. Now, all sin is sin, but when God uses a term that is wildly different than any other, we should pay attention to that. And I would say this, too, because as we look at the Bible and we think about these things, look, 
we talk about, you know, girls playing, you know, men who identify as girls playing in girls' sports and how that's bad. Uh, you know, how did we get there? Well, first of all, you know, for a long time, we've kind of made this thing out that girls are just as good as boys. Since when did boys become the standard for girls? Why should boys be the standard for girls? Aren't girls girls? And aren't boys boys? So why don't you let boys be boys and girls be girls? <laughs> when you say to a girl, oh, you throw like a girl. She is a girl. Um, so for a long time, what we've been saying is that girls are just as good as boys. So we've been saying there's no difference between boys and girls. And so now that a boy wants to actually put that into practice and identify as a girl and play on a girl's team, suddenly everybody's got a problem with it. If there's ever been a time for Christians... Now, now listen to me. If there's ever been a time for Christians to take seriously that we appear distinct, male and female, that we model distinct roles like the Bible has laid out for us, husbands, wives, male, female, okay? And maybe if, we, if there's ever been a time when we modeled that with a little bit of joy and contentment rather than grudgery, shouldn't it be now? I, I, mean, if people, I mean, if people are this confused outside in the world about gender, who should be the people that when they look at them, they realize there is actually a path to contentment and joy and fulfillment in the gender that God has made me. Who should they look to and see that in if it isn't God's own people? And for so long, we've, we've fought about, well, uh, you know, I have the right to wear this, or I have the right to not wear that, or I have the right to behave this way. Or I have, and Christians, Christians have been caught up in their rights. And friend, your rights should take a back seat to your Christianity and to your Christ-likeness. Um, uh, listen, if there's ever a time when we should be modeling this to the world, it should be right now. And I, we're, we're late in the game, but let's start. <laughs> let's start right now to show contentment and joy and model these roles the way God wants us to. Because look, um, no, distinct, no, no difference whatsoever between what we are biologically and what we're going to say. Well, yes, um, but aren't there abnormalities? Aren't there sometimes actually, um, I was talking to a gentleman here uh, during the handshaking time and he mentioned uh, kind of this rare uh, uh, defect uh, that he dealt with uh, when he was in the, the military uh, of a child that was born... And it was unclear uh, biologically uh, about that, that child's gender. Okay, yeah, those things happen every once in a while. And, you know, so there are abnormalities that take place. When the, and we ought, to be, we ought to recognize that, okay, um, and not, uh, not be critical of that and not mock that idea. But can I just tell you, this leads us to the third, third response here to the transgender movement. And that's this, that sin has affected each of us and sin has affected every part of us. Sin has affected each of us, and sin has affected every part of us. Um, sin has affected every part of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. For by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All have sinned. All have chosen to sin. 
all have made uh, that decision, all carry within them inherent sin. That is, we are born with a tendency and a propensity to sin. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 says it this day that we were by nature, we were by our nature the children of wrath even as others. Why? Because we are born with a tendency and a propensity to sin. When you say, well, I believe that children are born innocent. Um, First of all, have you had any? Um, Second of all, do you have to teach a child how to throw a fit? Do you have to teach a child how to fight over a toy with another kid in the nursery? I'm sorry, not the nursery. That would never happen at church. Uh, um, Do you have to teach children how to lie? No, you don't have to teach them any of that. Do you know why they do it? They do it naturally because there is inherent sin in every human being that is born. It is human nature to choose the wrong over the right. Now, human nature, human beings don't always choose the wrong over the right, and I think we ought to recognize that, but that doesn't change the fact that there's an inherent propensity, an inherent tendency within every human being to choose what's wrong, and that's called sin. And the fact that we do that and the fact that we can show that that's true is a proof positive. All have sinned. All have sinned. We've done that inherently. It has affected every part of us. You know, sin is the, sin is the reason for death. Disease, sickness, death. So sin has affected every part of us. Physically, we are affected by sin. So when we talk about abnormalities and defects, why is that? It's the result of sin. When we talk about cancer, that's the result of sin. And not, it is not even necessarily the result of acts of sin. Because there are good people who get cancer. Who, who maybe have never engaged in activities that lead to cancer. Um, at least not knowingly. Sin has affected us physically, but sin has also affected us spiritually. Um, the effects of the fall are not only around us, but they are within us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, talk about this. Talk about the vanity of the mind. That's the way, as opposed to the way that Christians are to walk, this is the way that unsaved people walk, those who have never been saved. They walk in the vanity of the mind. The vanity of the mind is a mind devoid of truth. A mind devoid of the truth. Not only is it the vanity of the mind, they walk without understanding they, they, they do not have a true relationship with God. They are ignorant of a true relationship with God. Um, the Bible says that they are past feeling. That is, they are apathetic about it. In other words, the sin that they live in, the, the, the lack of an actual relationship with God, um, the relationship with God that we as Christian people are to be modeling to them and witnessing to them about... They've got to the point, they're they're past feeling, they're apathetic. It doesn't matter to them that they do not know that kind of real relationship with God. That is the way the unsaved mind works. And Paul says, you're not to live your life the way they think. That's not the way it's supposed to go. We've all been affected that way. Um, Andrew Walker in his book states, we cannot trust our feelings or all of the passions that reside within us simply because we feel them. Just because you feel something doesn't make it true. You can feel an awful lot of things that aren't true. 
I, I won't ask you to raise your hand by testimony this morning, uh, but you know, I, I would, I would not surprise me in, in a crowd like this that there would be f- people, Christian people, who have struggled with what we refer to as the assurance of salvation. That there would be people, perhaps, this morning who have struggled and doubted whether or not they are saved. Your feelings about the matter don't make it so. And you may have felt that you were unsaved, and you may have struggled with that doubt, and that may have been a real struggling experience for you. But your feelings about it didn't make it true. The reality of whether you had believed or not, that was what made your salvation true. So we could feel a great number of things that aren't true. And by the way, we could feel and want a great number of things that we should not want. That's a sinful nature, friend, and we've got to recognize when we're talking about this transgender movement, we've got to recognize that sin has affected every part of us physically, disease, death, sickness, spiritually, the way we think, our minds, um, how we approach life. But it's not only affected every part of it, it's affected each of us. Can I just tell you this? We do not all face the same struggles. In this room this morning... Every one of us struggles with a different sin problem. Every one of us does. Um, now, the, the problem is, is that some people's sin problem is much more vocal uh, than others. <laughs> it's much more obvious than others. Have you ever known somebody who had a problem controlling their mouth? Have you ever known somebody like that? Every day, they were always saying the wrong thing. Uh, they were always saying things they shouldn't say. Uh, you know, they, they, they wouldn't never say the things that they should say. Okay, they had a problem with their speech, right? Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Because why? Well, because they open their mouth and they remove all doubt. They've got a problem with that, okay? Um, okay, but you know, so we would see that. We would see someone struggles with that and we think, well, that's their problem. And here's the deal, is that we get attended because, because people can't see our struggle and because people don't see behind the facade. I mean, I think everybody looks pretty good here this morning. But because we can't see behind what's going on behind the facade, we somehow or another think that their problem, since it's more out in the open, is somehow worse than our own. We all struggle. We all have struggles. We all face things. Um, And that is a result of sin. Um, Rather than railing against those who face a struggle over their own gender, maybe we should work first and foremost about being more honest and humble about our own struggles. Um. But look, sin is a problem, and sin has affected all of the world. Every human being has struggled with this, and every human being does. Now, praise the Lord that there is victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord you can know that and you can have that, but it doesn't remove the struggle. And it doesn't sometimes remove, uh, because as long as we are in these bodies, uh, we will be fighting a war until we reach, finally, okay, uh, heaven. Um, so listen, uh, look, sin has affected each of us and every part of us. That is our third response. And here's our final response to the transgender movement, because they would say that here's how you find true fulfillment. The way to find true fulfillment is to follow your heart. The way to find true fulfillment is just to go ahead and live out whatever it is that you're feeling. Follow that inner sense of self. That's the way to be fulfilled. Now, in contradiction to that, here's what the Bible would say. The gospel, the gospel is the only answer 
for true fulfillment. The gospel is the only answer. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to look at a couple of verses here and make a few points, and then we'll be done. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse number 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians at, in their church setting. Here's what he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous, the unrighteous in this passage is speaking of those who are not saved, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, Be not deceived. And here are the things that characterize those who are unsaved, the unrighteous. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, um, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says that here, the unrighteous, those who are unsaved, shall not inherit the kingdom of God, shall not know uh, a future home in heaven, shall not know that, they will not inherit it. And here he gives a list of descriptions uh, of the kinds of people that this would characterize. And notice verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Now listen, in the church at Corinth... In the membership of the church at Corinth, there were those who had been fornicators, those who had been adulterers, those who it says here, abusers of themselves with mankind. That is a reference to homosexual practice. In the church at Corinth, there had been those who had been that way. He says uh, also effeminate. Now we have an we have a definition of effeminate, okay? But that's not don't don't take it the way we use it today. The word effeminate here is actually talking about someone who also engages in homosexual practice. Um, it is someone who plays the part of the gender that they are not. They were in the membership of the church at Corinth. Such were some of you, but here he goes: ye are washed. But ye are sanctified, you are set apart, ye are justified, that is declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The gospel is the only hope. The gospel is the only answer for true fulfillment. Um, We talked earlier about the suicide rate uh, amongst transgendered people. The the average suicide rate in the general population, attempted suicide rate, is 4.6%. Amongst transgendered people, the attempted suicide rate is 41%. It is a 10 times higher. Are they finding fulfillment? Not according to that statistic. Not finding fulfillment. Uh, Denise Schick, whose dad had transitioned to be a woman later in life, calls the lifestyle sad and depressing calls it a make-believe life that does not fulfill, leads to regret, and leads to an attempted, or, or attempted rate of suicide. And this is a lady who had seen her own dad die full of hormones that were not his own, in depression, regretting the life that he had lived. That's not the path to fulfillment according to the Bible. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, the Bible says. The gospel is the only answer. It provides the only avenue for real change. One thing that when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we need to recognize is that, look, these people are not unsalvageable. There is no one that is unsalvageable when it comes to the gospel. 
The gospel message, Romans chapter 1 tells us, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And if people would believe, they would be saved. And the gospel could do its work of transformation for those who hear it. It's the only avenue for real change. It's the only message that gives meaning to all of suffering, even psychological suffering, even, even what people go... Listen, uh, I, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Every person struggles, every person has difficulties, every person faces hardships, but all of those struggles, all of those difficulties, all of those hardships have an answer in the future that's greater than going through it right now. And yet we are called to go through it. We are called to experience that. We are called to continue to endure that, not because God wants us to suffer, but because God has promised that through that we are made more like Christ. And when we get to the other side, uh, he promises that we will see that. So we have to stop viewing their struggle as more gross or worse than ours and see it as all the same. And it calls us, listen, the gospel is the message that calls us to selfless and sometimes even self-denying choices. Listen, for a transgendered person to say, I feel this way, and because this is the way I feel, this is the reality that I'm going to live in, the gospel calls them to something else. The gospel calls them to, you may feel this way, but you are called to deny yourself and to live a different way. Every single one of us are called to do that. Every single one of us are called to give the gospel to someone and to give them at times whenever we don't feel like doing it. Every single one of us is called to know God and to know him more intimately than we know him now, even though that may take extra effort, extra diligence. We're all called to do things that may make us uncomfortable. We're all called to deny the self and to live for him. That is part of being a Christian. And so the gospel message is the only message that can bring true fulfillment. And so here, here, if there is a challenge that we can take from this, I'll close with this quote from Andrew Walker who said this, Look, before we challenge another person about their life, we have to challenge the person that we see in the mirror about their love. Are we willing to love someone and to do what's right for them, even though we disagree with the choices that they're making, and even though we may disagree with the lifestyle, are we still willing to love that person, to empathize with them, to tell them the truth, even though they may not want to hear it? Before we challenge them about their life, we ought to challenge ourselves first and foremost as Christians about our love and our love for them, first and foremost, and our love to give them the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, and thank you